This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicoast on today. Today is June Today is June 2nd, 2022, and this is episode 292. I'm Scott Delunderbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, you can have drugs but not guns. Changes are coming from the federal government. But first, we'll touch in on the Ontario election results as we're watching them come in. I have to say thank you to all our patrons for helping make this show possible, you can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. So Scott, it's about 8.30pm on Thursday, June 2nd, as we mentioned, the results were pretty much done two hours ago in Ontario. Yeah, I think the uh, election got called 11 minutes after the polls closed. So you know, real nail biter on that one. Don't bury the lead. It's a Doug Ford majority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much what everyone was expecting. Uh, slightly surprising in that he drew his seat count and uh, popular vote share slightly up at this moment, projected to pull in 83 seats compared to the 76 last time and has added points of a percent to his 2018 vote share. The NDP, the official opposition, still looks set to lose nine seats down to 31 from 40. They also dropped about 10% in the polls from 335 to 23.5%. That has led Andrea Horwath to announce she is resigning after her fourth kick at the can. You know, fourth time was not the charm, it turns out, for her. The Liberals did not have the comeback they were expecting. Uh Winning a measly one more seat compared to their 2018, so they're up from seven to eight, which notably is not enough for official party status, which got to be a blow for a party that ran the province for 15, 16 years, something like that. They did slightly pull up their popular vote share from uh, 19.5 to 23.7%. Interestingly, pretty much right around the same spot is the NDP, but only get an eight cents eight only get an eight seats to the NDP's thirty-one. So yeah, first past the post is really biting the Liberals on this one. Notably Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca has lost his seat by a lot as I scroll down and look at CBC. He's losing by forty four hundred votes or eighteen and a half percent in his riding. The incumbent PC cabinet minister got over fifty percent. So like even if the entire NDP voted coalesced around Del Duca, he could not have won. Yeah, every other party leader, including the Greens' Mike Schreiner, who was also elected to get into the next party, got about 55% of the vote. I think Doug Ford did a little bit better than that. They all smooth sail to majorities in their ridings. But yeah, Del Duca chose just an awful riding, unless I guess they were hoping for a much different result tonight. He has announced he's also resigning as leader of his party, so there'll be two leadership races to follow. And yeah, the Greens maintain their one seat and grow their popular vote, vote from 4.6 to just over 6%, but they failed to break through in Doug Ford's cabin country. 
Yeah, turns out the uh, model of the story here is Buck a Ride is not the uh, big winning campaign idea that the Liberals thought that it would be. And finally, there's one independent who was elected. This is Bobby Ann Brandy, and I had to look up who this was. She won in... Brady. Bobby Ann Bra- Brady, who I had to look up who she was. She won in Haldeman Norfolk, and she defeated the progressive conservative candidate there. She was actually the executive assistant to the previous MPP who was a progressive conservative and that guy endorsed her over the candidate the party picked so some shenanigans and bad feelings going on there but effectively a conservative beat a conservative and combined they got about 65 percent of the vote and once you add in some of the fringe conservatives the liberals NDP and greens together got less than 25 percent of the vote in that seat so very blue country And we're not going to go through the 25, roughly, other fringe parties that ran in this election in various seats across the province. Yeah, you posted a screenshot on the Slack of the full list, and I have to say I'm amused that there's both an Ontario centrist party and an Ontario moderate party who seem to be competing for a whole half of a percent of the vote. Don't forget the People's Progressive Common Front, or the... Ontario Provincial Confederation of Regions Party. There's just all kinds of stuff happening. As far as I can tell, there's only one like far left party. There's only the Communist Party of Canada, Ontario division. So it's the center and right that have split on the fringe in Ontario and the far left and the communists managed to keep together for a whopping 2000 votes province wide. But there you have it. The, you know, bombshell story that Press Progress dropped yesterday or tried to make into a bombshell that in 2018 top Doug Ford advisors tried to set up back-channel connections between him and Vladimir Putin did not take off probably because it was dropped less than 24 hours before voting and also as you dig into the details of the story Doug Ford never actually took the meetings and it was all in 2018 so it's not a good look but yeah, they weren't uh, flying to St. Petersburg as uh, tanks were rolling across the Ukrainian border. Yeah, that's the Ontario election. Everything Allison Smith said on our show last week proved to be true, I guess. So yeah, Wag the Doug will continue. Go check out her podcast. Coming back to British Columbia, let's talk about the smallest amount of decriminalization we're going to get eventually. Yes, the federal government has finally responded to the begging and the pleading of the city of Vancouver. And actually, I don't know if they technically answered the city of Vancouver because they answered the the province uh, and it overrules it. The city of Vancouver announced they're dropping their separate application in response to this. But they're claiming it as a victory. They're very much claiming it as a victory. Kennedy needs anything he can claim as a victory at this point, considering how the last four years have gone. So that's right. All the drugs will soon be legal or not criminal offenses in BC with a lot of caveats. So the first big caveat is that the exemption is not indefinite as the province wanted. It's a three-year exemption from January 31st, 2023 until 2026. So we have like more than half of a year to wait for this, even though we are seeing about 150 people die a month from the toxic drug supply. The province had asked for exemption limits of 4.5 grams for personal use for 
all the different drugs. You could have 4.5 grams of heroin or 4.5 grams of coke, even though they're very different drugs. And the is feds. That, uh, is that like total or per drug? I believe it's total. I didn't look closely enough into all of it, but I believe it's total combined, all of them. Someone can add us if I'm wrong. You know, people I know have pointed out like some of these drugs can't be uh, purified and densified while others can or can be cut differently to make them more effective and harder. And that's one of the criticisms of a low limit. But it's also one of the things that raises eyebrows when you say we've applied the same standard to all the different drugs. And I think the response is the province did look at this in its own application and just said, it's easier for cops and users to just know you to one number rather than you could have 10 grams of this, but only two grams of that, but four grams of this, because those are the science numbers. It's just like, it's that difference in public health between the public part and the sciencey health part. So you all get two and a half grams. The drugs that are covered are opioids, including heroin, morphine, and fentanyl, cocaine, including crack and powdered cocaine, and methamphetamines, MDMA, also known as ecstasy. So you can start carrying those around and not get caught. Now, it's still illegal to sell them, so you won't be able to just get them legally, so you will have to buy them from someone breaking the law, and that person could be charged with trafficking, which also creates one challenge, but there's, you know, outside the radical drug liberation groups, there's not many who are calling for the decriminalization of trafficking yet. Yeah, particularly when it comes to stuff like fentanyl and the uh, more toxic of the the drugs out there. Yeah, and I th- as this conversation progresses, I think that's going to be something that gets raised more and more because the line between drug user and drug seller is not always hard and fast. It's not like drug dealers are necessarily this mythical organized crime danger but sometimes they're just people trying to get by. Um, but here's where we're at as of January, as of February next year. Now, notably, the exemption's not entirely universal. You will not be able to possess drugs at elementary or secondary schools, at licensed childcare facilities, at airports, or on Coast Guard vehicles and helicopters. Which I guess means if you're getting rescued and you have some drugs in your pocket, you're, you're better off letting those go down with the ship. Yeah, it's also still going to be a crime if to bring drugs on a motor vehicle or watercraft if that is being operated by a minor, whether or not it's in motion. So if there are kids on your boat, don't bring your drugs and also keep the drugs on the boat away from the reach of the driver. And also because of the way the laws work in this country, members of the Canadian Armed Forces aren't uh, exempt. Yeah, because the National Defense Act has its own code of service discipline for armed forces members. And yeah, there's a se- separate provisions under there for that. And I think it's unlikely to see that change. As part of this agreement to allow drugs to be decriminalized at some level for personal possession, the federal government has made specific asks of British Columbia. And these are things that the provincial government would say they're already working on largely but they do need to continue to show progress because this isn't just this isn't just free drugs it's you know we're decriminalizing with the hope of tackling the ongoing crises so show us what work you're also doing to promote 
other solutions to it. So BC is committed to improving access to health services, providing law enforcement equipment, providing law enforcement training and guidance, engaging with Indigenous people, as well as people who use drugs, law enforcement, racialized communities, and other stakeholders, leading public leading public awareness campaigns, and monitoring and evaluating the program in an ongoing basis. The federal government and Carolyn Bennett, the health minister, really pegged this as a small-scale pilot to try it. They really emphasized the idea that we don't know that decriminalizing drugs is safe. Police told us that most of the time they only confiscate under two grams, so that's why they chose to set this at two and a half grams. And this is really just a pilot project to which many- Confiscate over two grams. Yes. They're, They're not letting people run around with 20 grams, but taking away the one gram stuff. And so- you know, much of the pushback has been this challenge that, sure, we don't know what effect decriminalization will have, but we know the effects of the current of the status quo. And the current effects of the status quo are that probably 1,500 people will die between now and legalization if nothing else changes at the rate people are dying from toxic drug overdoses. It's also, as many drug users and people in the space will point out, like, this alone doesn't do much. It hopefully helps reduce stigma and the fear and allows people who are using drugs to use a little bit more safely and to seek out services if and when they can and want to use them. But it doesn't make drugs safer. The drugs we have out in the streets are very dangerous and that's why people are dying, including people in my extended family. Uh, And so, the pushback is multifaceted, right? People are saying this is too little. Uh, the low amounts there will lead to people having to engage in riskier behavior. People in remote and uh, northern communities won't be able to stock up, so to speak, for a week or two, but instead have to engage in chasing down harder stuff or getting more concentrated drugs or ones that are cut with more fentanyl. And there's no safe supply, so we don't know what's in the drugs. And because the numbers are also quite low, if police aren't trained adequately, they may still be able to go around harassing people being like, that looks like it's 2.6 grams when it's, you know, 2.4. And even if they don't end up arresting them, that can still create the fear of using in a more safer environment. So, I've seen a very mixed reaction to this. Even I think Richard Zussman and or Rob Shaw, one of them tweeted like, this is the federal government not listening to the province who already made a compromise position. Like they're, tr- they're p- being paternalistic at this point. Yeah, the, the overwhelming reaction I saw on social media, so, you know, very much a bubble was pretty overwhelmingly negative on that. I, I think getting outside the Twitter bubble, you would probably find a lot more or a lot less kind of very strong reactions to it. I know there's been some polls in Canada on decriminalizing drugs. I haven't seen one recently, but some have shown that, you know, there is a slim majority in support of this, and I suspect that's a little bit stronger in BC. People probably don't have strong opinions on, like, the exemption amounts or some of the other finer details, and that's where, you know, the policy nerds and people on the front lines are debating and fighting these fights. But it's, you know, it's important stuff in many ways, and it's quite frustrating to see the federal government take 
so long for this and then come back to BC with, we know you tried to balance between where the cops and where drug users said they wanted it, but we're going to balance that again slightly more towards the harsher side and then delay it for eight more months. And it's all just tiring. I, I have a, so a, I was a little skeptical of those types of polls because it's one of those things that most people don't really think about that much. And, you know, when asked as a quick abstract question in a launder survey may indicate about a lot of the time when the rubber hits the road and they actually have to translate a general desire for some version of decriminalization into actual policy language that gets a lot trickier. Like I think you could probably get significantly higher support for decriminalization in general than say removing specifically the, the sale of drugs out of the criminal and into ticketing offense. Like I think that is something that if proposed as a like a concrete detailed policy would probably not match the general yeah, decriminalization sounds okay. Answers you get on polls. It's also, I'm looking at one from 2020 from Ipsos where 47% of Canadians supported the decriminalization of the possession of a small amount of illicit drugs and narcotics. But then they asked again, do you support the decriminalization of the use of illicit drugs and narcotics? Support drops to 36%. Yeah, so that, that tells me so it's very... We're very happy with people to have them, but we don't want them using them. Yeah. But part of the thing we've seen is, like, politically, there is a, cons a growing consensus in BC around this. Like, federally, the Conservatives oppose this, but the other parties are pretty strongly on board, and the NDP even proposed a bill to go farther. In BC, like, at the local level, I think Vancouver's request for an exemption was unanimous by all of the various parties and independents and political perspectives. Provincially, I don't think the BC Liberals have spoken out against this. I think they're supportive of it as a one of many tools, obviously. And I think the Greens have been critical that this isn't going farther. And so, you know, where, where people are and where politicians are aren't always the same. This is an interesting place where BC politicians are in some ways ahead of the broader public, but not to where the academics and drug users are at versus the federal government is still held back a bit because they don't want to be seen as letting too much go loose in BC. Now, when asked, are, is the federal government going to consider similar exemptions for other provinces? I think they've largely said, We'll wait and see what gets asked. They're considering it, I think, for some cities like Edmonton and Toronto, I believe, are making similar requests to what Vancouver did. But this is all going to be now kind of a BC pilot project for Canada and for the world. There's only a few, I think Portugal is the only really place that notably has decriminalized personal possession like this. There are a couple others that have in Europe that are in that general direction. I couldn't name them off the top of my head. Yeah, Portugal's the, uh, definitely the most famous. Yes. The three-year time frame is also interesting because it means there's a fairly high chance that this thing could come up for renewal in the middle of a poly first term, 
which probably is not going to be something there that government would agree to. I do believe the governments have the ability to end it sooner if they choose. So if the conservatives came in 2024 or sooner, they could kill it. Yeah, perhaps. Well, he's probably going to be too busy fighting with the Bank of Canada or whatever to to do that. It's always easier to let something just slide and not be renewed rather than proactively changing the status quo. And that would be and that would be his kind of repeating history in a way for the federal conservatives. I think it was a Cretchen or Paul Martin era exemption that allowed Insight to operate in Vancouver as a safe injection site. And Harper tried to cancel that and that fought its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And what they were able to show is the evidence showed that this saved lives. And in so many different ways on drug policy, drug users say, we need this thing. Governments say, maybe eventually, but not really. It's too risky. The public's not on side. So they just start doing it, whether it's needle exchanges, safe injection sites, or even just handing out free drugs as the Drug User Liberation Front has been doing recently. And the politicians eventually get on side with small pilot projects and slowly ramp them up. But meanwhile, the crises continue. But here we are. It's simultaneously a very massive step forward, but also not the step people in BC formally asked for. So it's very frustrating. All the all the formal responses are like, this is great, but sucks. So we'll have to see how it goes. But let's jump from drugs to guns, where Trudeau doesn't does seem to want to let some British Columbians eventually have some drugs. He's going to not let anyone else get any more guns. Some guns. So, of some handguns. kinds. Yeah, handguns specifically. Scott, you like guns more than I do, so lead into this one. Okay, so yeah, on Monday, the government announced that they're bringing forward new firearms legislation. This comes in the wake of the tragic shooting in Texas, which seems to have been the motivator for this in a way that is very crassly political. But in terms of what's actually in the bill, the kind of biggest headline item is they are bringing in a quote-unquote, freeze on the purchase, sale, importation, and transfer of handguns in Canada. So if you got them, you can keep them, but you can't sell them, buy more at all, which has the weird implication that the Liberal Party thinks that we reach the socially optimum number of handguns on May 30th, 2022. So... The fact you can't sell it, I'm assuming that includes resale, right? That That's, yes. Yeah. So, like so one person with a restricted firearms license wanted to buy a restricted handgun off someone else with a restricted firearms license, they would not be able to do so under this. Yeah. So it's the right number of handguns, but presumably it will decrease as guns stop working. Guns seem to last they, a lot longer than like cars. If you can maintain them, they're pretty reliable and can be used for a long time. Also, the way a lot of the firearms uh, laws and regulations are written is that individual weapons parts aren't banned. It's you know just like the upper, the receivers and various parts are the kind of core firearm component, and everything else is just parts that can be fairly easily acquired. 
purchased and whatnot. So in theory, you could buy replacement handgun parts, and I don't think it would run afoul of this. So it would be, without too much work, it would be pretty easy to maintain handguns for a very long time. Are you still able to gift them or inherit them? Because I'm just wondering if we're just hoping like all handgun owners eventually die and then they have to surrender that as part of their estate because they can't pass it on. I'm I'm not entirely sure. On yeah, that. sure. That's one of those we're getting way too technical. Didn't, didn't come through in the reporting. I haven't scoured the entire bill yet on there. It, it also has the yeah. It, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense as a policy because like, if if handguns are so dangerous that it's a serious threat to public safety that they cannot be, or that someone who has gone through the training, the testing, the background checks, all of that stuff required to actually acquire a restricted firearms license. If those people are not, cannot have those in a pub, in a manner that's consistent with public safety, then like the only logical conclusion would be that they shouldn't have them. But this weird thing where, okay, you can have this dangerous weapon, but nobody else can pass the same process that you have previously gone through to get that. Like, there's just a disconnect there that makes the whole thing very incoherent and seems to be more of a kind of tool of political signaling than a public safety first or a, a policy derived from trying to maximize or improve public safety. I get the argument, but I can also see a pragmatic argument in that this is the easier way to slow the growth of, you know, weapons in the country. So, you say it's not ideal that there are guns out there, but taking people's guns is going to be harder than just stopping people from getting more guns. So, it's like the half measure. You expect the second thing to come would be a buyback program and that's what they're proposing for quote-unquote assault style weapons as has previously been promised yeah so last i want to say march march of 2021 the government promulgated an order in council that banned that they built it as banning 1500 assault weapons in reality it was 10 models and their variants most notably the ar-15 Though that also was the similar situation as this handgun thing where it was more for political be seen to be doing something reasons than a like clearly made sense if you understand the ins and outs of guns because functionally identical guns were not banned in that. So it, anyway, it, it was a political thing more than anything else. But the follow on to that was after the ban was in place, there's a okay, people have these that they legally purchased and were licensed and, you, you know, you're grandfathered in for a time, but what happens next? And well, what happens next finally is with this, with a, a buyback program for all of those. I don't know if I've seen, I don't think there's been an estimate that I've seen on what the cost and number of uh, guns that this is going to be, but it would, you know, it's probably not a small expenditure to do this. No, I know it's been done in Australia and I believe New Zealand and a couple other countries. So it's not like a novel policy. Yeah, it's not we'll breaking have to see. new ground at yeah. all. I think it's even been done in the past for some other guns in Canada. Presumably. Yeah. Anyway, th this is more just acting on a previously done promise. 
there's also a uh, new terminal fence that's going to come in from altering uh, magazines to change them into magazines that can hold more than the legal amount. So uh, a lot of guns have magazine wells that are deeper than like a five round magazine would be. So it means that in practice, people have to have magazines that can that could in theory hold more. And they've typically had a pin or something installed that kind of blots them after the legal amount of rounds. And those have generally been fairly easy to get around and easy to modify. And this is making it a rule or putting in criminal penalties for doing so, which to be honest, I thought was already illegal. It probably was, but like they're clearly clarifying the rules on this and adding more penalties. Yeah, it, it's one of those kind of crimes that I agree. It's like the thing that you shouldn't be allowed to do, but it's also not the thing that's going to stop someone committed to doing it. If you're the kind of person who's going out to do a mass shooting, it's not, oh, I can't slightly modify my magazine and fit more bullets in that i guess i and if i do that i'll face you know an administrative fine or criminal fine for that that's why i won't go do the mass shooting and murder of a bunch of people and i'm just picturing the rap sheet of someone who does a mass shooting and buried at the bottom is and they altered the magazine of the gun what it will affect though is people who just have larger weapons at their you know, in their personal possession, not for criminal purposes, but for, you know, sports shooting and hunting and things like that, will have to make sure that they maintain that pin in there. And I think that is yeah, a reasonable expectation. I haven't seen this clarified one way or the other, but I believe there might also be some follow on regulations or, or something to that effect that is going to require a more hefty restraining device of some sort to, to minimize or rather than just a simple pin or something coming down on that. But that's a, a detail I don't have right in front of me on that. But th there could in theory be additional requirements on how the magazines have to be done to prevent tampering. Yeah, the next set are the red flag laws. Why don't you run through what those are? Because I think those are the least controversial. Yeah, so there are new power. So there will be new powers to take away firearms from people involved in domestic violence or criminal harassment, and there were already some ability of courts and police to and firearms officers to basically take away guns in some cases. But I believe this just expands the the scope and powers on these various things. So I mean, yeah, th this one's actually a, a pretty positive step, and I don't have any criticism on that. There's also increase in the maximum penalty for owning, acquiring, or manufacturing a firearm illegally from 14 years to up from 10. Yeah, and I saw as well buried in another article that they're also looking to help stop the import of weapons through a few more penalties for, and tools or resources for RCMP and CBSA, things like hiking a couple import jail penalties. I guess that would be the acquiring from 10 to 14 years. You'll need a firearms license to import ammunition. And you'll also have new immigration powers to bar anyone from entry previously charged or convicted of gun trafficking. Um, the bill seems very likely to pass as the block have said they 
are supportive of additional measures and would go as far as a full handgun ban. They want to see trafficking halted and they want a full ban on military assault style weapons, not just a model by model basis, which means yeah, based the- on how the laws work, I don't think they can do that. Yeah, part of the problem is military assault style weapon is not really a technical firearms term. Ban the scary looking gun, Scott. Yeah, that that's in practice what it means. But as we talked about when they the liberals put out that OIC banning assault style weapons, like, f- most of the firearms that get uh, classified in that are magazine fed semi-automatic weapons of a uh, smaller medium caliber. And those can come in a variety of forms. Some of them have uh, plastic and polymer hand grips and everything and, you know, look like a AR-15. And some of them that are functionally identical are look like a hunting rifle. And there isn't a huge amount of ways that you can write out a series of technical specs that captures one or the other so you in practice you actually have to do this model by model basis unless you're uh banning all the guns for like yeah ban set ban semi-automatic rifles would like take care of it but it would also capture a lot of the you know hunting rifles and the like that there isn't a big call to to ban and like at that point you're getting into a much broader category than just uh the things that get branded as assault-style weapons. And the NDP also said they are supportive of moving this forward and studying it further and seem like they're likely to just vote in favor of it. Uh, They did say they're skeptical because liberals don't tend to follow through on things, but they did note the idea of a freeze would be very significant. They also called in their comments for anti-gang diversion programs, things to tackle domestic violence more broadly, and again, to stop the smuggling of illegal handguns, because as many critics of the liberal motions to clamp down on firearms regulations is the idea, and I've, I don't, I haven't seen the stat, and I'm not disputing it, I'm just curious of, you know, most crimes being committed with illegally obtained firearms rather than ones that would be captured by these kinds of regulations. I Yeah, it's been a while since I've looked at the stats, but yeah, last time I remember seeing stats it was definitely a majority of firearms used in crimes were illegally obtained on that and like that that does also limit the effectiveness of this even if the the handgun policy changes were you know actually coherent rather than this but there is only so much we can do on gun crimes when we have a giant border with a what's effectively an open-air gun market directly to our south and yeah if we really want to clamp down on that stuff it's going to mean more resources going into border services and more resources going into various police departments to be more effective at stopping the guns coming into canada and tracking down the illegal guns that are already here and it's easy to pass a law tweaking the Canadian Firearms Act. It's a lot harder to actually do the hard work of preventing the flows of illegal guns. And that's a big part of the problem here is like, there's only so, so much you can do. And we, on changing the rules for legal gun owners, because we already have what is 
by all accounts, a pretty effective system. There's, you know, it's not perfect, but the possession and acquisition licensing system, the, the background checks, all of that, the the firearms proficiency and safety test that one has to pass in order to get it. Like all of these things combined amount to a fairly effective set of firearms laws that by and large do a pretty good job at if having a situation where if we're going to have some civilian ownership of firearms in the country, which we're a big country full of wilderness and there are a lot of rural communities where those are where owning a firearm definitely passes the cost benefit analysis. If we're going to have that, we do altogether a pretty good job of managing the legal aspects of that. And the liberals pretty much included the same thing because when they took power, they did a whole deep look at the firearms laws in the country and the bill they brought forward. And I think it was 2017 might've been 2016. They, they branded it as a big change to the system, but like in practice, it was mostly a series of fairly small adjustments that changed a few things here or there. But like they concluded when they studied the issue in their first term that yeah, by and large, the system was pretty good. And since then, most of their gun policy things have been more political and trying to win the the political messaging situation more than actual like serious attempts to improve public safety. And this is no different from that. On the public safety angle, I did try to find some stats and I didn't do a thorough analysis, but I found at least one website that tries to chart per capita gun deaths by country for a given year and give us some comparative comparisons. So per 100,000 residents, the U.S. has about 12.21 citizens die per year by gun violence, either, I believe that's suicides or homicides. Canada has 2.05, Australia 1.04, and the UK 0.23. Now, people like to say, but people kill a lot of people with knives in the UK, but they don't. It's hard to kill someone with a knife. There's gun, there's definitely knife violence in the UK, but knife violence is less, it's bad, but it's less terrifying than gun violence because knives are just less scary. But like you said, it's that question of, what number is politically acceptable? It's going to be hard to move that better, but Australia is doing arguably twice as good as we are, and the UK 10 times as good as we are. But we are, like you said, right beside the US. So, Yeah, it, it helps that those are effect- they're both islands and they're not yeah, directly beside the most heavily armed country on the planet. So it's a, ta- it's a difficult issue, but one that's always going to be there because it is also disproportionate where the kinds of gun violence are seen. You know, we've seen calls by several cities to enact handgun bans. I think there've been some, I can't remember if there was talk of it provincially in BC, but some provinces have talked about it in the past. And I think Trudeau has started to muse about giving individual municipalities the power to ban handguns as well. Yeah, so that was featured in their 2021 election platform. He'd mused about it in the lead up to that. There was a comment somewhere in the CBC article quoted him saying that they're they're looking at moving away from that and more towards this freeze on the sale of handguns. 
I don't think a municipality by municipality system really made any sense in large part because the rules around handguns are already very strict. Like you, you can basically only ever keep a handgun locked away in a gun safe. Legally speaking, you can, you know, transport it to and from the range with the authorization to transport certificate. But like those things are so strict that you're technically breaking the law if you say stop for McDonald's with the gun in the car. You know, get out to to grab a burger briefly. You would eh, well the gun is in a you know secured container, secured in your car. Like that would be illegal under Canadian under the Canadian firearms laws and you know if we're that strict about handguns the handguns that are causing problems in cities are not the ones that are falling under the the legal rules in that but we'll see what they do if anything beyond this like you said a lot of tweaks in here as well as some you know small but important things the Conservatives will raise some hackles, but ultimately I don't think any of these are like even really hitting those kind of gun rights things that a lot of Conservative voters would be as concerned about other than the pure like political showmanship of it. Yeah, if they, uh, you know, I think long, if they were going after long guns, it would actually be a bigger mm-hmm. deal than handguns for the most part because handguns are pretty much just exclusively for target shooters yeah. uh because that's like pretty much the only reason you actually legally buy one in the country you're not going that. hunting with a nine millimeter no in fact that would also be illegal because you can't use a restricted firearm to hunt in the country in this country and all handguns are either in the restricted or prohibited categories there is apparently a handgun hunting thing that happens in the states which i don't doesn't strike me as a particularly good way to hunt considering how inaccurate handguns are yeah like uh, at, at the end of the day that the liberals are doing this for political reasons and i think there's no clearer sign of that than the fact that they let a lot they introduced a bill that covered a lot of these same provisions last term let it die on the order paper before the last election and then yeah there's some musings about they'd bring it back but it wasn't until the shooting in Texas that all of a sudden they rushed into to do this, and like that, like very clearly telegraphs that they are reacting not to the situation in Canada with firearms, but to the goings on in the United States on that, and that reaction is political because they can't influence the actual public safety impacts of that. So it is entirely a, a signaling exercise. We are talking about it, politics here, but not to give a sort of backhanded defense of the liberals, I could name a half dozen policies or more that they have dragged their heels on and killed through their own prorogation and snap election calls that are banner policies, things like the conversion therapy ban and things like that, that they are, they would argue are important bills but then only seem to get passed when weird miracles happen Aaron O'Toole whips the conservatives into unanimously voting for a conversion therapy ban that like a third of them did not want <laughs> and so the fact that they've dragged this out and then 
when a political moment comes along, even if it's one sparked by an international tragedy, I don't begrudge them as much for capitalizing on that. Like in politics and in trying to move issues forward, you want to catch momentum for the things you're doing. If you're going to do, if you have your laundry list, your platform of things you're going to do, doing them when people are paying attention just makes the most sense since you'll get the most credit for doing it. It's a little, it is crass, right? Yeah, it, 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 it feels it, not just crass, it feels gross in this respect because the, of just how tragic the situation was and them season on it to put in policies that are not necessarily public safety enhancing policies, but signaling we're doing stuff about guns policies. Let's swing back to British Columbia for a, a short segment here on the wrap up of the legislature. We might come back to this next week. We'll have to see how things line up. But I just wanted to do a quick roundup of what happened? Like the legislature just rose for the summer. They put out a big press release about how great it was. They passed 22 bills, uh, including the, the budget. Was, uh, was entirely silent on the museum hilariously. That's not done. That only just started. And that's more the government doing it than the legislature. The legislature didn't really have anything to do with that. What the legislature did do was pass bills that allowed the transportation agency to buy land and build homes, the Home Buyer Protection Period Act that requires municipal elected leaders to step down if they face uh, criminal charges for lying to police or more serious things, uh, card check, changes to the oil and gas royalty system, action plans for UNDRIP, anti-racism data bill. And a number of others. I noticed as well, just today, even all today, they passed Bill Twenty Five, all three readings, inclu including committee stage. That's a uh, extra supply act. It just gives them more money to spend for the next few months. I think it has to be passed when estimates are done. I just found it funny that on the last day of the sitting of the session, they passed a bill all in five minutes or something. Two bills are still sitting on the order paper. Bill 7 is the Coastal Ferry Amendment Act. It's at first reading. And Bill 26 was just introduced today. It's at first reading as well. It is a super minor bill that fixes like a typo in the Environmental Management Act where they forgot to cross-reference something. So we don't care about that one. Bill 7 is super interesting though because it brought in a number of changes to the oversight structure of BC Ferries. What critics... It called renationalization by stealth. <laughs> and it's interesting to see that they didn't move that past first reading, which is something they usually only do when they see a lot of pushback and no and little reward to doing it. So I guess BC Ferry stays a semi quasi private arm's length organization. The BC government's the so sole shareholder of BC Ferries, I believe. So, it, not really, you know, privatized in the traditional sense of the term. But it, yeah, they, they're not moving it from the very arm's length to the very not arm's length model that they were looking for, at least not yet. Yeah, I think the defense of what the BC government was trying to do is some of the decisions made by BC Ferries, especially early in the pandemic where they weren't letting 
people stay in their cars to socially distance. Which yeah, I that think was a transport that was, Canada yeah. requirement. So, like, BC Ferries eventually got a exemption from Transport Canada on this. But that was the feds not adjusting the regulations and then halfway through the pandemic not extending the exemption on that. So, yeah, now that one's not on BC Ferries. I believe the criticism that was leveled up was actually within BC Ferries control was that they cut back a lot of service due to massively falling demand as well as staffing issues. And that would cut off many residents, which it's that kind of balance between economic viability versus public delivery of the highway system. So, like, complicated debates, but it's just mostly interesting that they've shelved plans to play around to tinker around with that oversight structure. Yeah, and I believe one of the other things they're looking at was um, have to do with how BC Ferries goes about purchasing its new ships and whether they would have to uh, sole source from within BC or not. I just want to see another government, another BC NDP government sunk by fast ferries. <laughs> just for the irony of it. And moving into Quick takes, just a few stories to close off the show. Speaking of the province, the provincial government announced just in this past week that we're throwing $2.4 billion at the Mayor's Council 10-year vision for transit in Metro Vancouver. This is good. Money for Surrey-Langley SkyTrain, money for electric buses, money for what TransLink needs to do. Yeah, no, we need a lot of capital investment here in the region in transit. And yeah, it's good that there's more coming that way. This covers about 40% of it, so the municipalities and the feds need to step up for the rest. Next, a story I found on CBC just trolling through the news before starting recording tonight, but it's actually quite a bombshell from CBC. They went through and looked at the orders and council numbers on the federal government's database. And when you do that, they're listed in numerical order, like 2017-01-02 and so forth. Every once in a while, some will be missing because those are ones that are deemed secret or unpublished because they usually fall under narrow exemption relating to national defense or national security or tr- like corporate takeovers that in- involve national security reasons. CBC reviewed 8,900 orders in council and found that the federal liberals have kept 72 secret since taking office in 2015. By comparison, the Harper conservatives noted uh, transparent government by many people. Compared to the current one, they are. Well, yeah, they only like, kept 29 not, not just of these. On this, but like on a lot of things, they were more transparent than Trudeau has been. We're in a bad trajectory as country, yeah. So, Harper, over almost a decade, 29 secret orders in council, the Trudeau government, 72. Despite there arguably being fewer wars happening that we're involved in. Because I don't know if these even go right up until the Ukraine uh, invasion by... The government tried to defend this. The Privy Council office said they believe in transparency and they say, quote, the number of orders that are either... The number of orders that either are or are not published in any given year is not a proxy measure for transparency of government. Kind of is, though. 
<laughs> like, like we this don't is have, literally we don't... something that is not being dis, uh, disclosed, so it is untransparent. Like it, we don't, does yeah, it we, don't, we don't full... have a lot of objective measures, and this is just a nice, simple way to count. Yeah, like it Maybe... doesn't capture the whole gamut of transparency, but like it's a snapshot into one aspect of it for sure. And yeah, there were four secret OICs around May 6th, which was also about the time that Trudeau went to Ukraine. So could be a connection there. Who knows? If they're secret, we can't say. The opposition is livid over this. The NDP is calling for the Emergencies Act Review Committee to be able to review the two OICs that were issued in secret during the convoy occupation of Ottawa to see if those related to anything there. And I presume they would do it in a in-camera style meeting where it could be done while protecting national security. It's like the, you know, failure to deliver on ATIP requests, the failure to answer parliamentary questions or really open up to the media anymore. Really, like, we've just seen trends in government in Canada where the temptation to be secret and to be a little more secretive once someone shows you can do it is too much versus the it's really easy to talk about transparency, but being transparent, why would we want to do that? We could just operate in secrecy and then no one can judge us. Anyway, we'll throw links to these stories in the show notes. It's quite in depth by CBC, so credit to the journalists there. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.